This presentation is from Managing Design 2017, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. I would like to introduce Mike. Uh, Mike and I have worked together a bunch over the last few years in various incarnations of his jobs. And the reason we have is that Mike actually knows how to get UX into projects and how to get projects run, um, which is what he's going to talk to us about today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. So, sound check, we're on? Yes, all right, good. Okay, hopefully no feedback. And check, check. Hey, there we go. Okay, good. Um, That was a a daunting introduction, so I'll try to live up to that. Um, Thank you all very much. Uh, My name is Mike Efron. I'm the head of customer experience and online sales for Kmart. Uh, And previous to Kmart, I've spent the last 14 years in Australia in similar roles uh, at Coles, with Seek, with Medibank Private, working with some of the people in the room here today who will catch me out if I get anything wrong. Uh, And so in that um, capacity, I've had the, the, uh, the opportunity, the challenge on any number of occasions to try to get design work uh, done, uh, to gain backing for what needs doing. And so I would like to share with you today some of the lessons that I've taken away from that. Um, and I'll try not to be hidden too far behind screens and such. Can you all see okay, everybody? Yes? Oh, look. Oh, and now here's, I'm in the spotlight now. Um, so this is told from the perspective of client side. Those of you on agency side may find that um, it will help you see the perspective of what it's like to be on client side, and I, and I hope that um, some of the insight here is relevant for your day-to-day as well. So let me start off with a contention that I suspect everyone here in this room will agree with, which is that great design makes everything better. Everything gets better with great design. But of course, in order for everything to get better, first it has to be funded. And for funding, it has to have typically something like a business case, which may be a formal document, it may be an argument you make to somebody with a checkbook, but there's some kind of a case you need to make. So you've got to be able to sell the benefit. And selling the benefit of making everything better is a bit broad, is a bit difficult. How can we sell the benefit of making everything better? And the answer is, well, we can't. We actually need to be more selective if we're going to tell a compelling story which is all well and good to say, but then how do we be selective? So what I want to talk about today is how do you find the right story to sell what needs doing? And let me pause for a moment because I talk about business cases. My guess is what comes up in your mind is documents, spreadsheets, calculations, etc. What the hell does story have to do with a business case? short answer is everything. Why? Because if you're thinking of a business case in a vacuum as something that where the num- as long as the numbers add up, this is the- then you get the green light to do the thing, you may be missing some vital, uh, a vital step in the process. Because a business case may be perfect on its merits and yet not get up. I suspect many, if not all, of the people in this room have had an experience like what I'm going to describe where you had this thing that you wanted to do, and it was an absolute no-brainer, where the numbers actually just sold themselves, totally stacked up, 
nobody could find fault with the, uh, the commercial rationale for doing this thing where the thing that you wanted to create was, it, was something that nobody wouldn't want, and yet it failed. And why did it fail? Well, maybe it failed because possibly you misread the situation that you were in. Possibly you actually didn't understand the decision maker's mindset or their pain points. Possibly you attempted to be comprehensive but ended up being complex instead. And possibly you had a vision of the obvious, something that was just so clearly needed that it didn't need explanation, and yet your decision maker just couldn't see it. So those are the kind of pitfalls that I'm going to be talking about today, and they're not about the numbers. They are about story. And what I want to talk about today is, again, whether you're client or agency side, how do you stay mindful of pitfalls like these so that you can be successful no matter what circumstance you're in. Now, being successful no matter what circumstance you're in sounds like a magic bullet, and I'm not offering magic bullet type solutions today. So yes, there are times where you will have to change your plan. You may even need to cut it back, at least for a time. But if you stay in control of your story, you can realize your ambition in the end. And that is where true pretenses become invaluable. So I've called this talk Designing Under True Pretenses. So what do, what do I mean by that? In simple terms, today I'm going to be talking about how do you be selective in defining the spine of your story. What I'm not talking about is alternative facts. <laughs> okay? Pretense, in this case, does not mean shading the truth, manipulating things, uh, leaving out important information, uh, or telling outright, shall we say, untruths. This is about uh, finding the spine of your story that will sell your product, your design, your initiative, your team, whatever the investment is you are looking to get made. Now, a couple of disclaimers. Number one. Sometimes you actually don't need a pretense at all, okay? Sometimes it is just easy. You just ask for money and then they give you the money. And you get all the money you need. Now, if you are having one of these circumstances, grab it with both hands. <laughs> Savor it. Love it. It's a rare and wonderful thing. And if it's happening to you, we all salute you. This talk is not about those times. I suspect most of us have been through those times where it's actually pretty hard. Second disclaimer is, of course, a business case is not just about a story. There's all kinds of practical and technical aspects of business casing that can really cause us to fall over. Uh, they can be boring but important. And I'd love to be able to talk about things like all the jargon related to business casing, uh, all of the um, methods of how do you calculate value even when something is kind of not, can't be quantified. Uh, how do we navigate the tribal differences between people who think in more of a design style versus financial and uh, accounting types? But unfortunately, I'm not going to have time. I'm hope, I hope I'm not going to be cut off um, just covering what I want to today. So if you want to talk about those things, please um, come chat to me during the breaks. So today is about story, so let me tell you my story, one of my stories. Um, so I mentioned that I spent some time at Kohl's. I was the head of customer experience for Kohl's Online. And I want to talk to you today about a project 
that was codenamed Swift Shop. It's a redesign of Kohl's Online. And before I start, let me ask anybody here from Kohl's? Okay, good. I won't get caught <laughs> until Donna puts the slides online. Uh, secondly, anybody uh, was at UX Australia last year and saw the talk about this project? Anybody remember about the button? Yeah, is there is Sue? Thank you. Uh, fabulous. Okay, so that there was a talk last year at UX Australia that focused in on the design of one button in that redesign. It was about as micro as you could get. So today I'm going to be coming at it from the opposite angle, the very macro, and the journey of how that project came about. Uh, some of you will find this familiar. There's at least one person who worked on this here in this room. Uh, this is what Coles Online looked like before Swift Shop uh, was launched. So this, uh, as of about 2013, was what Coles Online looked like. And this is what Coles Online looks like today. This is the Swift Shop user interface. This was launched in 2015 and 2016. Swift Shop, we believed, was a world-class customer experience. Customers told us that it was simpler, easier, and especially faster than the website it replaced. And that was its chief benefit. And frankly, that's what we wanted. That's what we were after. And yet, it was actually funded not by a single business case to do that, but by a series of business cases. And not one of those business cases focused on simplicity, ease, or speed. So the very thing that customers most valued about the product that we delivered, that frankly we who were doing the delivery most cared about, were not the things that formed the basis of its business case. Why not? Because actually, the organization was not seeking those particular benefits at the time we wanted to do the work. Uh, they cared about those things. They were just other considerations that took precedence. So the work was sold under other pretenses. Now, as I say, this is not about shading the truth. Those pretenses were equally true, but they were selected to fit the needs and the appetites of the organization at the time. Uh, and as those evolved over time. So let me talk about what that journey was like. So 2013, this is Coles Online. This was the product of a multi-year, multi-million dollar, massive transformation project. Complete technical replatform of Coles Online, ripped out all the plumbing and replaced it. And as part of that, new user interface. It was an extremely successful initiative for Kohl's. The Kohl's online business grew very rapidly following the deployment of Project Orange, which is uh, what this was called. The user interface, however, because the project was being driven by so many other considerations around technology, finance, and time, the user interface wasn't the most successful part of the project. In fact, customers found it hard, complicated, and slow. Fast forward two years, Swift Shop launches, customers find it easy, simple, and fast. Seems pretty straightforward. Had a problem, fixed the problem. It was not, however, that, so that straight line journey. Seems simple and straightforward, was anything but. Why? Because after delivering a multi-million dollar redesign, the last thing anybody wants to do is deliver another multi-million dollar redesign. 
that is not going to happen. But we did. We actually did deliver a multi-million dollar redesign just two years after delivering another multi-million dollar redesign. How do we do that? Well, okay, I've spoiled it. It's a true pretenses approach. There were three distinct phases, and I want to take you through the specifics of that. Each one had a different rationale and deliverable. That allowed us to work with rather than against the given circumstance. And that, in turn, allowed us not only to succeed in redesigning the redesign, but actually doing that at a speed that was far faster than normal. That is not typical for large organizations to replace a major multi-million dollar asset just two years into its life. Four key success factors I want to focus on today. So number one, we sought appropriate funding levels for the circumstance. My god, that sounds boring, but how important is that? Understanding the needs and appetites of our stakeholders seems obvious, not obvious. Focusing each one of these business cases on a single critical benefit and promising concrete outcomes, not ambition and not vaporware. And let me make that more concrete for you today. So, going back to the ancient days of 2013, Project Orange has just launched. Very quickly, our customers let us know that, yeah, they're not really that satisfied with the user interface. We talked about, bloody hell, this thing needs a lot of work. It kind of needs a redesign. It was a very short conversation. That was not going to happen. So we took an approach, which we called continuous improvement. This is, let's find the bits and pieces that we can start to upgrade. We'll take an incremental approach. We'll lift it up from the bottom up. And we'll focus in on those areas of the experience that are most directly tied to customer outcomes and financial outcomes. So we call that continuous improvement. What it actually was, was our chance to start fixing some key issues while we developed a roadmap. Because the truth is that even if we'd gotten the green light to redesign the redesign, we wouldn't have had a clue what great looks like. Well, what's that going to be then? If this isn't good enough, well, what is good enough? And actually, we couldn't answer that question. So we took an approach that you might call the pay-as-you-go. Now, fast forward a year. Undertaking this continuous improvement project, we've begun to develop a really crystal clear view of what great looks like. And we've learned through the process that incrementally improving this big, complicated thing is bloody hard, very expensive, and the likelihood that we're going to be able to turn this into this is pretty low. We needed a clean slate. Bloody hell, why can't we just redesign the redesign? Again, a short conversation. Not going to happen. So we had to find a way to do a clean slate without turfing the main asset. So we found that there was one important subset of our customer base that was having a harder time than most, and that was showing up in the numbers, and that was tablet users. So if you were on an iPad, this was even slower and harder to use than if you were on a laptop. So we conceived a business case called Tablet Site. And this was going to be our chance to build a standalone reskin of the main site that would 
be our chance to work in a clean slate without throwing anything away. So what was it really? It was our chance to build the end state vision in parallel with keeping the organization's investment alive. You might call that approach a Trojan horse. And I got to tell you, it wasn't a secret. We were quite open about the fact this was a Trojan horse. This was the redesign that we were chasing. This we knew would become the future state of Coles Online. But by having a specific commercial rationale that directly addressed the needs of a sizable part of our customer base that would also serve the needs of the organization, we were able to, to begin work on a redesign without calling it a redesign. Now fast forward one more year. Conditions in the broader market have changed. Supermarkets are under increasing pressure from the likes of Aldi, Costco, and other discounters. Kohl's has undergone a financial transformation which for the last five to seven years has led to rocketing growth in sales and even faster growth in profits. And as is always the case with this sort of a journey, sales growth is going to start to slow down. And if you want to keep your profits growing, the only thing you can do in that sort of an environment is to find ways to reduce cost. So that's the external circumstance. And when we applied that lens to Kohl's Online, we could see that actually the Kohl's Online web platform was really quite expensive to run. This thing drove a huge amount, or required a huge amount of compute power to operate at the scale that Kohl's Online has to operate at. Lots of boxes. And in fact, Kohl's Online was growing very rapidly, which meant that the organization's investment in boxes was going to grow equally rapidly. And those boxes are bloody expensive. And when we looked at our work through that lens, we realized that not only was our intended future state simple and fast from a user perspective, but the reason it was fast was it was simplifying the code base. And by simplifying the code base, it would actually reduce consumption of infrastructure resources. Any of you who just fell asleep, please wake back up. Yes, I did just say consumption of infrastructure resources. How sexy is that? So we conceived a business case based on cost savings. What was it really? Well, it was a redesign. Redesign and replace. Chuck this thing out. It's too expensive to run. You might call that approach the true pretense. Now, why was it a true pretense? Because in actual fact, Swift Shop has driven a dramatic reduction in the operating costs of Coles Online. It did what it said on the tin. Coles Online can now continue to grow at a very rapid rate, along with the rest of the online grocery uh, industry. And its infrastructure costs will grow at a far slower rate, meaning profits get better. Now, as I say, there was no secret in any of this. None of us uh, made any uh, pretense that we designed this thing to reduce the organization's costs. It was not what drove us. And yet, it is what drove the company to fund it. So four key principles I want to talk about for the rest of this. How am I doing for time? Can I tell? You just, what, yeah, wave at me when I've got like 10 minutes left. Because I'm probably, I get to 20 minutes. I'm going to tell you so many war stories. Four principles. Uh, they may seem obvious. They're anything but. Understanding where you are in the investment cycle. 
UX your business case. Being single-minded. And they say sell the dream. Don't sell the dream. Don't sell the dream. And let me be clear about what I mean by each of those. For the rest of this talk, I'm going to talk about those four principles. I will give you some examples, including some of my most instructive fails. <coughs> some of you I've worked with before. You may recognize the companies I'm going to be talking about. Just shh. Okay? Uh, knowing where you are in the investment cycle. Now, my apologies to those of you who, uh, for whom this may be old hat. But it's important to recognize that organizations invest in cycles. If you are on client side, you're working with clients, you will find that it, the organization may go on steady state for a while and then undertake a massive modernization exercise. And after that, things slow back down because you've actually got to have this benefit realization period or what they call sweating the asset. You know, if you build a big factory, you're not going to immediately start to retool and modernize and expand that factory. First, that factory is going to have to produce a lot of widgets to pay for itself. And technology investment's no different. If you propose an investment that is out of step with where your organization is in that investment cycle, it can doom you no matter how high quality your business case may be, no matter how compelling your product, no matter how compelling your design. So for the rest of this, I, want, I would like you guys all to think about a project that you'd like to get up or a business case that you've had to pull together or something that you have wanted to do or do want to do. And I want you to ask yourself, I want you to put it through the lenses that I'm going to share with you. So do you know where your organization is in that cycle? Be aware that in all but the largest companies, there is a single pool of capital that's shared across the entire organization. So even if your area hasn't modernized in 10 years, if a whole other area is sucking away all the capital, that's where you are in that investment cycle. If an, actually, if, if the organization's just made a massive investment, your wonderful idea may fall on deaf ears. So there is risk in going too big for your organization's appetite or capacity. Less obviously, there's also risk in going too small. Let me give you a couple examples. <clears throat> the overly frugal funding request. Um, company I work for, I won't name. Uh, we had a project... Uh, uh, important, really vital thing, cost around $200,000, uh, which was quite small by that organization's standards. And it was a capital improvement, so it had to go through the capital approval process. But the capital approval process was set up to look at projects that were like a million bucks or more. But because it was capital, there was no other person in the organization who could just sign it off. That meant our, our project was literally too small to get approved. Gives you a sense of what the organization's funding ap uh, capital appetite was like, that its approval process kind of assumed you're, you're starting at a million. <coughs> it would have been easier, we realized, for us to get our project approved by inflating it to five times its size, needlessly, than by keeping it at the right level. <clears throat> In the end, we had to break the process to get the project over the line. We did not end up inflating it to five times. Do, 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 do. Ah, and here, Mother Nature took all my caveats. <laughs> <laughs> so in the insurance industry, <laughs> excuse me, uh, working in insurance, uh, we had a range of initiatives, 
set to go. The business cases, the numbers stacked up. These were good ideas. These were things that the market would really, really like. And then I don't know if you all remember in 2011, 2012, there was a whole series of natural disasters across Australia and New Zealand, even the tsunami in Japan. Fires, floods, mudslides, Canterbury earthquakes, terrible, terrible time. And what happened to the enti entire insurance industry was that all of their capital suddenly had to be set aside from investments into the much, much more important domain of being ready to pay claims. So business cases that stood up on their merits suddenly became marooned, far from shore, unable to proceed. The organization's funding appetite changed for good reasons, and things that had merit could not proceed. Next principle, <clears throat> UX your business case. So, I have a revelation for you. Executives are human. They have needs, expectations, they have pain points, they have implicit and explicit needs and drivers. They have mental models, they have filters, they have all of these features we like to think of as being part of being human when we're dealing with our users. And the more you understand them, the better chance you can fit your product <clears throat> to the user needs. Seems obvious. But really, what's vital here is to apply what you already know, what you're already really good at, I presume everyone here is like unbelievably good at UX, to this challenge. Because it's, in many respects, no different. So ask yourself, do you actually know who will be making the funding decision? I mean, who specifically? Uh, what are their needs and expectations? What are their preconceptions? What's their starting point? Where are they coming at? Do they, uh, they speak the same language as you. <coughs> what are their pain points? And when I say their pain points, I don't just mean the corporate pain points. You know, we've got to reduce costs, increase sales, more market share. But they're actual human pain points. Because they are people. No, really, they are. Some of you executives in here in the room going, yeah, yeah I'm a person. Now, if you don't know the answer to those things, <coughs> find out. Sometimes that's hard. But it's hard whether you are uh, thinking about an executive or trying to find that elusive target customer to bring into the lab to research your design. Learn as much of their context as you can so you can walk in their shoes. Yes, empathize with the executive. And if you get knocked back, can you think of that <clears throat> as user feedback? Can you use that as an opportunity to retool your case and try again? Can you think of your business case the way you would think of a prototype or a beta? Something you put out there to get feedback, to get beat up, so you can bring it back, fix it, and then bring it forward again and make it successful. Sorry, I'm going to pour myself some water. <clears throat> so, a couple of case studies. I found myself working for a startup that was part of a larger organization. And the startup unit had grown quite quickly, largely by leveraging the customer base of the larger organization, some low-cost marketing. We'd gone really well, but we were topping out in terms of growth, but our, the expectations on us were to keep growing faster still. And we put together a business case that said, actually, the only way we're really going to grow at the scale that's being asked of us is by advertising on TV. 
And we did, the, we did the sums, we worked it all out, we, we navigated all the stakeholders and got everybody, yes, that, that stacks up, yes, you, that's the only thing we can do to grow is advertise on TV. And we were like totally locked and loaded, ready to do this thing. And then the case went to the ultimate decision maker, the CEO, and he said, no, nope, don't believe it. Don't think you've actually proved that you've really squeezed the lemon, that you've really used all of the low-cost growth opportunities available to you, TV's expensive, said, no, not ready. Okay, user feedback, let's go back to the drawing board, figure it out. We spent another year then trying to prove that we could do more to get more growth from leveraging the customer base and all the other things and couldn't. And sure enough, within another year, we were on TV. Next case study, am I okay for time? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, <clears throat> working for another company. Uh, we were manufacturing a digital product, something you transact online, uh, and it was going to be sold under the name of a larger uh, partner company. And as it happens, the person uh, who was the, the lead at the partner end was extremely belligerent, very difficult personality, and basically considered us to be the whipping boys and girls of choice. <coughs> We were, when I joined, uh, almost ready to launch a trial in a single state. The digital platform was well underway, and I looked at it and thought, oh, this thing's bad. Rushed. It's going to tank. Had to go to the executive at our side, uh, at our, on our side, and say, this thing's not good. It's going to tank. And when it does, we're going to be called on the carpet by our partner to say, what are you doing about it? Now, two choices, right? So one is you just you muscle through and you just put it out there and you just try to fix it after it's gone live, or you start over. Now in a case where you are being beaten up daily by your, by your partner, starting over is not a very palatable option. Showing up going, yeah, well, we got that wrong, not going to happen. So I put up a business case to say, all right, let's go ahead with this thing, but in parallel, let's start right now, a, a couple of months before this thing goes live, designing the better thing, the thing that we would actually be willing to stand behind. So when that day comes and we're called on the carpet, we can say, all right, well, we can keep putting lipstick on this pig, or we can switch gears and do the good thing. Which do you want? Putting my boss on the front foot with the belligerent partner. And that got approved. Why? Pain point. Individual person's pain point, right? So the person I reported to was the guy who had to deal constantly with the belligerent partner. Giving him a solution meant, yes, great, you've given me a get-out-of-jail-free card. Being single-minded. I suppose it's self-evident what that means. But when we think about design, it ticks so many boxes. You know, great products meet all manner of needs. And yet, a business case to be successful has to be about one thing. So as you're thinking about your hypothetical business case, please ask, what one thing is it about? And if you can't answer that simply, maybe get help. Uh, in my experience anyway, you guys may disagree with this, but in my experience, being single-minded isn't necessarily one of the chief virtues of designers. We tend to think holistically. We want to bring everything in and simplify it, but we're still thinking about everything all in parallel. Who's good at making things, boiling it down to a single core idea? Marketers are. Branding people are. Consult with a colleague in marketing. Get help. 
Maybe, if you need to, try a Trojan horse approach. You can pick one thing that your project's about, your design's about, even if it's about, if it's really about, 100 things. Case study there is, is Swift Shop. What was it? Eight, nine distinct feature themes delivering eight different types of benefit. Million, multi-million dollar project. So it's big, it's complicated, but we did make that business case about that one thing, which was cost savings. And the last principle, don't sell the dream. Being specific and concrete, I can't stress, I can't overstress the importance of this. Because visions, as appealing as they are, they rarely sell. And what's more, they are the first thing to get shelved as soon as adversity strikes. As soon as there's something competing for funding, as soon as the business has a hiccup, this thing that's sort of the abstract thing, the, the, uh, the goodie we're chasing over the rainbow, is the first thing dropped. So ask yourself, as you're thinking about your hypothetical, do you have a clear, concrete deliverable? Uh, are you possibly in danger of winning buzzword bingo? Are, do you find yourself describing it in words, using words like would and could, conditional, as opposed to the more concrete can and will? Well, it would do it this way. It, it could be used to do blah. These are signs that you may be in a more abstract space than you should be, and possibly a sign that you need to spend more time visioning and refining, and maybe your business case should be for that. Maybe try a pay-as-you-go type approach. Case study there. Uh, working for a large organization, there was an imperative from, from above. We must implement enterprise analytics. Ooh, implement enterprise. Very, sounds very sexy. It's very big, very visiony. Implement, and it, all kinds of swirling, people thinking about this across the organization must implement enterprise analytics, and it went nowhere. Nowhere, continued to just swirl. And then we realized that one particular business unit was on an older analytics platform that was about to hit its renewal date. And that renewal, license renewal, was expensive. And the solution there was maybe switch to a more modern analytics platform and uh, uh, avoid this big bill. And by the way, the more modern analytics platform was the kernel of what ultimately could become enterprise-wide analytics by implementing the same package throughout the organization. And that got up. Implement enterprise analytics, swirls. Avoid a big bill. OK, we understand that. We can do that. So those were the four principles. So let me come back to what, what was the spine of my story. Three years, four principles. Fundamentally, getting backing for design is hard. There are many pitfalls along the way. Clearly, you must believe in and be able to demonstrate that your investment is worthwhile, that it will pay for itself, so that you don't get to skip that bit. But it's not just about that, because even the very best business cases on their merits may fail. You must also choose your story carefully. Now, ideally, your story will be what it says on the tin. It'll be, we did this thing because of these reasons, and that's, what we're, and that's how we're selling it in. But sometimes it may not be that. In fact, sometimes you may need it not to be that. You may need to find a true pretense. Now, 
what I've talked about today, I'm hoping, can help you find the spine of your story so that ultimately you stay in control of your narrative no matter how the circumstance changes so that ultimately you can realize your ambition by taking the path of least resistance. Concluding thought. So you might have seen this coming, but guess what? A business case is just another type of UX challenge. These four principles map very simply to the UX principles you are probably living and breathing every day. Understanding where you are in the investment cycle is nothing more than learning context. UXing your business case is nothing more than understanding your users' needs. Being single-minded is about prioritizing simplicity and clarity above all else. And lastly, shamelessly stealing. Don't sell an abstract dream because that makes them think. And don't make them think. Thank you very much. All right, we've got 10 minutes or so for questions, so start asking. Oh, shit. <laughs> G'day, Mike. Hi, Amir. How are you? I'm, I'm, I don't know. How am I? <laughs> You're doing well. Thank um, you. I was just curious about that um, case study about the 200K capital yep. expenditure, and you considered uh, blowing it by a factor of five to one yep. million. First question is, did you actually consider, well, shit, let's just inflate it to one mil. And then if you did, did how did you think about, well, how are you going to sweat that one mil asset? Um, so the honest answer is no, never considered it because, frankly, it would have been wildly dishonest. Uh, and so it's just one of those moments where you go, but common sense, but common sense, but common sense. And you find yourself banging your head against the common sense wall. Uh, and eventually enough people kind of recognize that, yeah, it would be silly to to inflate the, the thing that we sort of found our way through. Ultimately, we actually, we kind of had to navigate the million dollar process, but we just um, were, it was shepherded through in a, in a relatively, um, uh, I guess, well-supervised way so that it could just tick all the boxes and get done. Yeah, really great presentation. That was so good. Um, Thank you. I, I just had the thought, say, say with the example of the Coles project, does trust come to it? come into it um, for you with them now that they now trust you and it's, it's a lot easier? You still use that same process? So that's a good question. Um, I think what, uh, so what drives organizations is a much broader set of considerations than what any of us would like to contemplate on any given day, which is a long way of saying, actually, I don't think it changes much. I think at the end of the day, if an organization is primarily, if its mission is about um, customer delight at all costs, then great business cases can be premised on that and that alone. Most organizations are trying to balance multiple competing considerations. If you're a supermarket, you've actually got your, the vast majority of your investment in your physical network. So you'll continue, I suspect, to have the kinds of challenges that we experienced in just translating how does this great thing actually tick the boxes of what the organization most wants? I, don't, I actually don't think it changes that much. Hi. Hi. Great presentation. Thank um, you. Just a question. You talk about large organizations also run on collaboration. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the partners, risk, finance, and others, and how you worked with them? Because they're obviously key people yeah. with 
with the kind of expertise we need. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's a that's yes. Um, that is so so true. So part of the learning process was recognizing that even though you may have senior stakeholders, you may even have the CEO say, we're going to put customers at the heart of everything we do. They have a finance department. And that finance department is ultimately going to run the numbers on your thing. And if the numbers don't add up, the message they're going to deliver to that CEO, that managing director, is uh, the numbers don't add up on this. And you can stand there going, yeah, but we're putting the customer at the center of everything we do. And the answer you'll get back is, yeah, you can do, yeah, so do that, but make the numbers add up too. So with this process of getting to cost savings, I, I left out a fair bit of the, 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 the steps along the way, which were a lot of that sort of almost prototyping. Well, we have this thing. We think it's beautiful. We think it's great. Okay, great. Well, we're looking for cost savings. Oh, shit, really? Okay, all right. Take it by, well, hmm, actually, this, yeah, this thing will save you money. Okay, really? Will it, well, well, prove it. Oh, shit, okay, all right. And then actually I had to unpick that and get it um, for a multi-million dollar investment uh, exposed to the third degree. And by undertaking that process, shall we say, more or less willingly, you earn the trust and respect of the people who ultimately have the ear of the person or people who are making the decision. So recognizing what all of those, uh, what role all of those players play is vital, and it's often not obvious. So trial and error, I think, is vital uh, in this, or at least in my experience. Maybe I, other people would have like, seen it all coming and figured out how to do it in one step. But I do think that a lot of what business casing is about is quite similar to bringing new products to market stuff you just can't know until you put something out there for people to react to. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Good job up there. Thank you. Um, the belliger belligerent partner. Yes. So we're talking, <laughs> we're talking about business cases uh -huh. and being on the money with finance, but at yep. the same time, you had a strategy where you were designing something on the side. How'd you go about that? Did you have side budget, interns? How did it work? So in that particular case, it was about being open internally and closed externally. So internally, we, um, we got the green light to open up this parallel path. And because the relationship with the partner was, frankly, unhealthy, we just didn't tell them about it uh, until we had something to show, which was about four or five days after the trial went live. So by doing that, it did allow for a bit of incubation, a bit of kind of, you know, reasonable protection for a process that was taking a bigger risk. It was actually saying, in essence, how do we reinvent this product category uh, in ways that may challenge the conventional wisdom? That involved bringing in some outside expertise. Uh, it involved having a number of challenging workshops with internal subject matter experts uh, and doing that um, while everybody was trying to get this trial out the door. So there's a fair bit of I guess empathy involved as well in recognizing you, you can't stretch people to the breaking point of having them focused on do or die delivery and also uh, trying to you know, come up with this brilliant other thing. So a little bit of, I guess, artistry in, in balancing the human side along with um, being sensitive about where the relationship was, um, yeah, I guess the, the state of the relationship. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, so 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was very much a deliberate, uh, incubated, parallel strategy. We're going to break so that we can swap speakers now. So okay. grab mic during the break. Anybody else grab mic during the break for all the other questions, including jargon-busting business cases? You are going to have such a fun lunch. <laughs> oh, let's talk about net present value. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so very much for that. Thank that you was all. excellent. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Managing Design 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.